written in chalk, the echo of Arthur Stace, explores the legend of the man who became Mr Eternity and how that word ended up emblazoned across the Sydney Harbour Bridge at the turn of the millennium. This award-winning documentary is now available to watch in the free Vision app. Just tap the Watch tab and scroll to the Written in Chalk channel. If you don't have the Vision app on your phone or tablet, download it when you search Vision Christian Media in your app store or click the link at vision.org.au slash app. Vision Watch. Another way Vision is helping you look to God daily. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 with Neil Johnson on Vision. And while all eyes are on the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we're going to turn our attention to these other big international bullies and focus on China today. In fact, our special guest says the noose is tightening on the church in China. Late last year, the Chinese Communist Party formulated new draconian measures on the administration of Internet Religious Information Services. And just over a week ago, it became illegal to post religious information to the Internet without an Internet Religious Information Services license. So you say, who can hold one of those licenses? Well, the uh, license to apply, an applicant must be a Chinese national resident in China and legally recognised by the Chinese Communist Party. So we're talking about what it means to China and what it may mean to you and I. Our special guest through this coming hour is Elizabeth Kendall, an international religious liberty analyst and advocate. She serves as Director of Research at the Canberra-based Christian Faith and Freedom and is an adjunct research fellow at the Arthur Jeffrey Centre for the Study of Islam at the Melbourne School of Theology. Elizabeth Kendall, welcome back to 2020. And thanks for having me again, Neil. Elizabeth, we've been preoccupied with Russia's invasion of Ukraine and, of course, the COVID issues over the last couple of years and under the radar, new developments in China. And you're describing those as tightening the noose around the neck of the church in China. Uh, It really is a severe uh, thing that is happening if you prohibit Christians being online with the gospel. Oh, absolutely. It means that uh, pastors can't even uh, communicate with one another. So pastors in uh, large cell church, uh, house church movements that often spread, you know, around the province and across provinces can't communicate with each other because they'll be posting uh, religious information to the internet in in their email correspondence. So it makes it really absolutely impossible and of course during all this time that uh, there have been lockdowns uh, going on in China the churches are now unable to broadcast their worship on the internet either even even just uh, in a small group and of course you, you're looking at in China the most sophisticated surveillance state that has ever existed so no one can get away with it and uh, the penalties for being caught now putting religious information on the internet without a license are really, really severe. The first thing they'll do is cut your internet connection, so that'll be the end of it for you. The next thing that they will do is, uh, or at the same time, what they will do is 
say you will be classified as someone with no social credit. So China has this system of social credit, which means they, you all through artificial intelligence and everything, you either gain positive credit or you lose credit according to, oh, you know, everything that you do and everyone you see. And uh, that then is credit as you try to live your life. So, so pastors are finding, house church pastors are finding they go to buy a train ticket and they have all the money they need. They just don't have the social credit. So they're not allowed to get a ticket. And people are increasingly finding that if you are a, a house church Christian, which means you are worshipping illegally, involved in illegal religious activity, then you will not be able to do a whole lot of things or get access to a whole lot of goods or services. So it's a very, very sophisticated way of coercing and rewarding and punishing people to get them to do what you want them to do. And it, the, the noose is very definitely tightening around Christians' necks, making it more and more difficult and unpleasant for them. So President Xi Jinping is making it clear that uh, they are cracking down on what they would call religious propaganda uh, spreading over the internet. For us, we just say this is regular communications, talking about the gospel, talking about the Bible, talking about discipleship. But that is just uh, being absolutely, and in fact already in force, is now illegal in China. Yeah, that's right. Now, these sorts of repressive measures really started to uh, accelerate when Xi Jinping became, uh, you know, the president of China. So we started to see it uh, back in 2012, 13 and 14 with the crackdowns in his former province of Xinjiang, when the communists in Xinjiang set about removing all the crosses from the skyline. And I always regarded what happened there in 2014 in Xinjiang as like a bit of a petri dish or a test tube. You know, if you can get away with it here and in Wenzhou, the most religious and Christian city in all of China, the Jerusalem of China, if you can do it here and get away with it internationally, then you can do it anywhere. And sure enough, over the years, things have really started to ramp up and things got really, really serious in, in uh, 2018. So in Feb on the 1st of February 2018, uh, China brought in its new religious affairs regulations. And basically what they were doing was making sure that, well, they said they still had religious liberty, but through these regulations, pretty well everything that wasn't Communist Party approved and sanctioned and registered and licensed would be illegal. And this makes, you know, like hundreds of thousands and, and millions of Chinese illegal. The worship they do is illegal. So that was the first real crackdown. And on the 30th of August that year, so 2018, a group of pastors led by Pastor Wang Yi of the uh, Early Reign Covenant Church, uh, the Reformed Presbyterian uh, House Church Movement in China, he wrote, uh, they, they wrote this protest letter saying they could not possibly uh, follow these regulations and that they, they expected China to have real religious freedom uh, according to their constitution. Now, that was August 
2018, and in December of that year, the arrests began. And 12 months later, in December 2019, Wang Yi, Pastor Wang Yi, was sentenced to nine years in jail for inciting to subvert state power and for running an illegal business operation, meaning his church. Mm. So that's where the, the real battle, the battle for China really sort of ramps up there. And then it's just gone, it's gone from, from strength to strength. The, the government has just really cracked down. So on the 1st of May last year, 2021, uh, the, uh, the administrative measures for clergy came into effect. And, and when that came into effect, it meant that no one could preach or teach or do street evangelism or witness unless they had a clergy card something that would be given to them by the Communist Party to give them permission to speak religiously in public and uh, even in private if it involves religious teaching. Elizabeth, then, uh, uh, sorry, just, go uh, on, yeah. we'll continue because uh, you're taking us a step deeper with every point you're making and uh, they are amazing points and for some uh, they'll be shocked. But just to, uh, while our hearts are in solidarity with Chinese Christian brothers and sisters as we're having this conversation, let me just uh, bring, uh, you know, even here in Australia into the conversation too, because with this rise of the technology, uh, the surveillance increases uh, to a point where then a big government uh, is able to use that surveillance detail with a social credit system to silence political enemies. And when the church is classified as a political enemy, it becomes an enemy of the state. Now, that same technology is here in Australia, isn't it? I mean, it just depends on the ideology of the leadership, uh, of the authoritarian stance of our own governments, couldn't this sort of thing be used against Australians in the same way? Well, yes, I believe that it can. And it's one reason why I am so strongly, I'm going to get a bit off topic here, but so strongly opposed to the whole vaccination passport system, the whole prospect that we might be like other countries and move towards a more digital economy. Um, all this sort of thing, it just means that we... Um, we have taken the first step on a very slippery slope. So in China, uh, you've got, you know, I think they've essentially got a digital economy and they have all this incredible surveillance. Now, I mean, we don't have anything like it in Australia, but a China, China is the world leader in this and they are rolling it out across the world. They're rolling it out under the name of safe cities. So there are cities all over the world today that are installing security cameras with Chinese facial recognition software, China's cutting-edge facial recognition software. Now, China is doing this not because they want to spy on you, Neil, or me and see what we're doing, but they're data harvesting for their artificial intelligence so that they can because artificial intelligence works by data crunching and the more you have, the better your artificial intelligence is. So they're data harvesting for their artificial intelligence so they will lead the world and everyone will just be drawn into their wake. They will lead the world in this and in medical technology so that everyone will just be drawn in 
and will become dependent. Forget about being dependent on, on Russian gas. The idea is the whole world will be dependent on Chinese artificial intelligence technology. And so all under the guise of keeping the people safe. No doubt that's oh, yes. probably a part of the narrative of the Chinese Communist Party to their own people. We want to keep you safe. That's why we have a social credit system. That's why we want to stamp out anyone who's an, uh, an, uh, a, uh, someone who might be uh, even seen as an enemy of the communist state, someone who wants to be a thinker on a different level. So uh, that can happen anywhere. As you say, uh, the technology is there, but you're saying it's so intense in China that right now it is gripping and churches are being silenced and pastors really are being forced out of their leadership because they are actually having their hands tied. Yes, well, we're, we're already getting reports of like underground house church pastors who have gone to buy, you know, a, a train ticket to travel to to an adjoining province and haven't been able to get it. Not because they're short on ca- on money, but because they're short on social credit. So the artificial intelligence and everything is already working. They've racked up negative social credit, and when they go to buy their ticket and they put their, their phone onto the machine, uh, it says, well, sorry, the government won't let this, this <laughs> the, the train, the ticket seller sell you a ticket because the government deems you unworthy of these goods and services. And, uh, I, I, you know, I just find it really disconcerting that here, you know, in, a, in Australia, in Victoria where I live, you can't sit down and have a cappuccino in a cafe unless the government gives you permission to do so. That's just completely bizarre, or, or at least the, they can't serve you one. And, uh, and things like that, I just find it so obscene I can't participate in it. So um, I'm a fully vaccinated. That's a choice I made, and I think everyone should be free to make that choice. But I cannot participate in this system that just looks to me like the very beginning of a slippery slope uh, just makes me feel exceedingly uncomfortable. And I think the more we move to a digital economy uh, and the more these things are set up, uh, the more we lay ourselves open to finding ourselves in a similar situation. Uh, I mean, if they, can, if they can use this system of rewards and punishments to coerce us with vaccines, what might be the next issue they want to coerce us on? To, to think it ends here is naive so and it's very interesting i saw a little documentary a couple of years or maybe a year and a half ago on on the chinese social credit system uh and i can't remember what i saw it on might have been foreign correspondent or something but the uh the correspondent the correspondent spoke to some very elderly chinese so people who probably have memories of the cultural revolution or at least their parents living through the Cultural Revolution. And they thought the whole system was just appalling. And they were shocked and horrified and didn't want to, know, didn't want to have a bar of it. Then they spoke to young people, really young people, the, sort of, the young people who are being educated in Chinese schools today with the Chinese nationalist narrative and, uh, and who therefore think the Chinese party is, there, is going to save them and make China great. Uh, these young people were all for it. Why? Because it'll keep us safe. 
It'll keep us safe. You're on Vision. It's Neil with you. And our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316. We're talking China. Our special guest is Elizabeth Kendall, an international religious liberty analyst and advocate. We're going to get through as many of these calls as we can. Let's take a call or two here, Elizabeth. Steve is in Parks in New South Wales. Hi, Steve. Welcome. G'day, um Brother Neil and Sister Elizabeth, uh, God bless you both, and thank you for taking my call. I've got a question, a two-part question to Sister Elizabeth. Sister Elizabeth, um, are you familiar with Dr. T- the late, great Dr. Chuck Missler's work? Uh, he put it on audio CD because he knew the dangers. But, uh, Dr. Chuck Missler's audio CD called Armour for the Age of Deceit. Um, you'll find that it'll answer... So many questions for you and make you stronger in faith. Steve, uh, good comment. And I'll just ask Elizabeth, uh, are you familiar with Dr. Chuck Missler? And, uh, of course, he was a great Bible teacher and an expository Bible teacher, dealt a lot with all of these sorts of uh, issues that are going on uh, geopolitically. Elizabeth, a quick response for Steve. Uh, Thank you, Steve. I'm aware of uh, Dr. Chuck Missler. In fact, I even shared a platform with him once many years ago in Melbourne, um, yeah. But I, I'm, I'm that. I thank you for calling in and and uh, putting his name forward. Anyway, Steve, thank you so much for your call. Taking calls one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. Let's hear from Nada on the Gold Coast in Queensland. Hello, Nada. Welcome. Hi. It's wonderful to be in touch. Nada, what are your thoughts? Um, I was just wondering if. Um, the viewers um, have heard about um, the Jesuit um, callings for China in the Ming Dynasty. I used to live in China for 10 years and did, I did like an undergraduate thesis on, on the, the Jesuit, um, Mario Ricci. He actually, they had a heart for the emperors and they, their evangelism efforts were to evangelize China from the top down. So what they did is they would come to China with their Western knowledge of astronomy and science and memory techniques. And then once they gained access to the emperor's court, because they had knowledge that was um, you know, very valuable at that time, they then um, used Confucianism to explain biblical um, knowledge as, as, as a form of dialogue and for evangelistic strategies. I was just wondering if, um, you, if, if people had heard about this, because the reason I'm raising this is because um, I have a great heart for the Communist Party. I believe that they, you know, many of them are appointed as God's elect. And I just, after my many years in China, knowing many amazing people that, you know, that are Communist Party members, I just would like to encourage people to really pray about how we as a country and individually and in different fields of influence that we all operate in, how we can engage with the, the CCP. Um, because Nada. I believe that... Good comments in here, and no doubt, uh, given the size and extent of the church in China, there would have to be all sorts of uh, programs and uh, and uh, campaigns to influence the Chinese Communist Party. But Elizabeth Kendall, your thoughts for Nada? Yes, that's uh, very well known that the Jesuits went in uh, very early and they, they, they had that top-down approach that you witnessed to the emperor... And the idea was that the blessings, if the emperors, you know, took took the gospel on board, the blessings would sort of trickle down. Then the Protestants came in and, and had completely the opposite approach. They start, they worked at the grassroots level, and um, and things uh, sort of gradually trickled trickled up. 
And I think there's an incredible, I would never, ever in my life say that one way is right or wrong. And I mean, we, we look at situations where we've seen, you know, like the king has been converted and it, it changes the whole, the whole country or the, the chief of a tribe has been converted and everything changes. So we know the power of that. Um, uh, there is not, I'd say, not one right way or wrong way. I think we have to do both. And um, it's really exciting that when both can happen. I'm also aware that there are people who are com- members of the Communist Party who are Christians. In fact, it's causing a great deal of distress for the top chiefs of the Communist Party and they're trying to clamp down on ideology and uh, to promote and enforce Marxist ideology amongst Communist Party members because they're very concerned about the fact that Communist Party members are, are losing their ideology and some are even becoming Christians. So we have to do both. We have to uh, we have to work at the grassroots and we have to pray for leaders as Paul encourages us to in Timothy. And thank you for for uh, reminding us that the Jesuits were in there uh, very early, even well before our Protestant missionary movement uh, ever began or existed. Nada, thank you so much for a valuable contribution to our conversation today. 1-800-316-316. Let's take another call. Christopher is in St Kilda in Victoria. Hi, Christopher. Thank you for, ta- for taking my call uh, this morning. Um, my thoughts with the technology would be with the uh, Antichrist. Would it be setting up the platform, especially with how you're able to monitor people? Good thoughts there, Christopher. It certainly sounds a lot like a biblical prophetic fulfilment. Elizabeth Kendall, any thoughts for Christopher? Um, well, thanks for, bring- for bringing that in. I'm not. I'm not a huge follower myself of, of a lot of biblical prophecy, so I don't really have a, a lot to say on that area. I only know that right right now it's causing a great deal of distress for Chinese Christians, particularly those who are active in the house church movement. Um, if you find you can't, you know, you can't your children into a school, into a good school because you are a house church Christian, that actually has like it's a small thing on the world platform. No blood is being shed, but it's a huge thing for that for that family. So um, you know, the the Chinese church is is being forced to to suffer, to lose, and I think uh, it's going to get worse and worse in the years to come. And I think uh, we need to be very alert because the methods that are being used by the Chinese Communist Party uh, could very well become methods that could be very easily picked up in uh, any Western country, including our own. Christopher, thank you so much for drawing our attention to that. Let's take one more call. Sterling is in Ararat in Victoria. Hello, Sterling. Welcome. Hi, Neil. Hi, Elizabeth. Great to talk to you. Look, I'm I'm just ringing to express my concern that what Elizabeth uh, revealed to us that the software for these alleged safe city cameras and programs come from China is very concerning. And I'll leave you with this, the saying, which I think is attributed to Mark Twain, those willing to surrender their freedoms in the name of safety deserve neither. Well, Sterling, uh, Elizabeth, your thoughts for Sterling? Well, that's, I think we've become very, um, very, 
Oh, no, compliant, very relaxed. I heard a really wonderful talk by uh, Neil Oliver, the uh, historian and archaeologist in Scotland. He, he was actually asking the question, why is it that Australians are so compliant when the measures, the COVID measures are so restrictive? And he just put it down to the fact that in Australia, Australian politics and society and everything has just worked. And because it's worked and we've had peace and we're on an island and we're prosperous, we've become very trusting of government. Uh, our governments have been pretty good to us, you know. We've become very trusting, uh, very maybe a bit lazy in monitoring where things are at. Very, We don't have a history, much of a history to look back on and say, oh, in our history, this is what happened when we all became, you know, entrapped. And so... We're letting things wash over us that in other countries that have a history and that have a different background, it wouldn't happen. And I think this is one of the failings where we have failed to actually teach history to children generation after generation. And I think that it could be a real problem for us. Elizabeth, let's change direction if we can. And uh, we'll still take some calls from listeners who might have some contribution. But let's talk about this for a moment. The UN experts, they're regarding these numerous cases that are coming to the surface as perhaps only the tip of the iceberg. What are your concerns about what's happening in West Papua and Papua? Yes, well, they would undoubtedly be the tip of the iceberg. Um, Religious Liberty Prayer Bulletin has been doing everything we can to try and uh, keep up with whatever we can get out of out of uh, West Papua and Papua. Particularly, the the real hot spot at the moment is the central highlands of Papua Province, um, and it's really really difficult because the government has, for many years, had the whole region. Uh, the whole of Papua, and I think possibly West Papua as well, closed to all outsiders. So it, there's no access for journalists, no access to international monitors. Uh, even even organisations like Human Rights Watch and the Red Cross, they are repeatedly denied access to the area. Uh, and the government, the, the Indonesian government says it's on security grounds. We can't guarantee your security but really it's because they don't want to be embarrassed by what's happening there. And uh, it's been almost impossible for a long, long time to get uh, observers in and therefore to get information out. We have discussed West Papua before and the crisis that was starting there. And uh, in previous conversations, we've tackled some of the background. But uh, a major highway going through the middle of West Papua and uh, the ways that the Indonesians are uh, taking advantage of some of the uh, the natural resources that are in West Papua. And uh, the people who are West Papuan, uh, they primarily are, uh, don't have the guns and the cannons to uh, to fight back when they are trampled on. So I wonder if you've got any just a, a brief background for listeners who are thinking, I'm not so familiar with this issue in Papua. And I know that people have said to us uh, after the past conversations we've had, they're so thankful that we actually will talk about it because it doesn't get uh, media time too many places. A little bit of background here, Elizabeth, for, for listeners who are saying, what is this thing with West Papua and why are they being hard done by? Well, uh, when 
uh, the sort of the colonial era ended and Indonesia got its independence, uh, the Dutch government, which, because this is all the Dutch East Indies and the Spice Islands and everything, it was all part of the Dutch, uh, Dutch Empire. The Dutch said, the Netherlands said, look, you know, uh, the West Papuan people are different. Um, the people in Papua uh, or West New Guinea, it was called Dutch New Guinea or um, West New Guinea. And, and, and the Dutch said, these people are different to the Javanese. They are Melanesians, ethnic Melanesians, uh, like all the other Melanesian islanders. And they are, uh, they are not Muslims. Uh, it would be wrong to make them part of Indonesia. And the Dutch made a really strong case. And the Dutch had been uh, doing great work with the Papuan people, particularly in the coastal areas. Uh, building schools and clinics and churches, and the church was already starting to grow under the Dutch. And then Indonesia, oh, actually before Indonesia invaded, we had the Protestant missionaries coming in, uh, Americans uh, with Missionary Aviation Fellowship. You've got Canadians, and one of the most famous Canadians, uh, uh, you know, wrote, wrote the book Peace Child of his experience in, in the Papuan Highlands and Australian missionaries uh, like Stan Dale, who was martyred in the highlands of Papua. Uh, so, so, you know, these Christians are the legacy of Australian, Canadian and Dutch uh, missionaries. Okay, and, so, um, and, so just so if we're just sort of encapsulating that, uh, this is our very, very near neighbour to the north, mm-hmm. Uh, and we hardly know anything much about West Papua, but there's been missionary activity that's gone on now over the last century, and uh, there is a very Christianized people. The Papuans are Christian, and when you've got uh, a, a developing uh, regime that is in charge, the Indonesians, who are primarily Islamic, it it just doesn't mix uh, that uh, you've got Christians who are then becoming second-class citizens. So uh, there's there's been a development, and uh, of course, uh, at one point there, some Papuan separatists uh, tried to fight back, and uh, and that's been the cause of uh, major developments and an escalated uh, violence against the Papuans. Well, that's right. So this has been going on since 1962. This has been going on for a long time. That's 20 years. Uh, sorry, 60 years. 1962 is when the Indonesian military invaded West Papua. And West Papua was, uh, was annexed. Uh, the UN, America, Australia, the UK, all were, in, were all complicit in this. They wanted to keep Indonesia out of the Soviet sphere of influence. So they basically just let them do what they want and supported them in it and were complicit in in the whole uh, process that led to West Papua being annexed and incorporated into Indonesia. And the tro- and so there's been a resistance going on for 60 years. But, you know, what, what happened in May last year after a killing uh, where some Indonesian, where some Papuan separatists killed uh, killed an Indonesian um, intelligence uh, officer, was that the the Indonesian government reclassified these separatists as terrorists, 
And by doing that, that gave them, the Indonesian government, the right to send anti-terrorist forces against them, including uh, special special uh, forces, uh, which are known as, and the special force that they detect, that they deployed, is known as Satan's forces. And they got that nickname for their absolute brutality in East Timor. So they sent them in with, with thousands upon thousands of Indonesian anti-terror troops to crack down on the West Papuan uh, terrorists. And, you know, the, um, the Human Rights Watch Indonesian office, uh, the, their expert, Andreas Sono, he said, um, uh, he said, according to Indonesian military estimates, the, the Papuan separatists have around 200 weapons so we're talking about a major military violence major military offensive with special forces and anti-terror uh, uh, uh troops against separatists who might have around 200 weapons this is incredible so so they're, they're being slaughtered and they're being slaughtered in darkness because the place is closed to all outsiders. And the UN experts are saying enough is enough. When we think of uh, images that might be in our mind of uh, Papua, uh, Papua New Guinea, or uh, and of course Papua and West Papua, the thought of these uh, tribesmen, uh, those who would be... Uh, throwing spears uh, and using all sorts of tribal implements. As you say, when they've classified them as having 200 weapons uh, between a whole people, uh, that's a very, very big uh, imbalance, isn't there? Because obviously the Indonesians are a advanced uh, civilization and uh, with perhaps the latest weaponry to be able to arm their forces. And so... But let me just ask you here, Elizabeth, when you classify someone as a terrorist, uh, you really do categorise them in a group that, you know, almost in a warfare sense, isn't it? So there is a certain sense here that when you go to the point where you classify the people as terrorist, uh, we're used to classifying all sorts of Islamic groups as terrorists. What happens yeah. when the Islamic groups classify the Christians as terrorists? That's the sort yeah. of imbalance we're talking about here, isn't it? Well, yeah, and we're talking about a major military operation against little bands of gunmen, um, you know, maybe the 200 weapons between a lot of them. Uh, and, and it's just absolutely, completely outrageous. And, of course, to, to classify someone as a terrorist means that they are essentially a threat to your national security. Well, to suggest that about uh, tribesmen with maybe 200 weapons is, it's got to be a joke, except, of course, it's not a joke. And one thing, one thing I was very disappointed, actually, with the, with the UN statement. Uh, I mean, I was really excited to see the UN statement because we get so little news out of West Papua that it's really difficult to, to find something to talk about because there's only little sort of bits here and bits there and a lot of it's old. So to get something like this with statistics in it and everything is really helpful and powerful. But, you know, in their statement, they never once addressed the issue of racial and religious hatred and the fact that it's Javanese Muslim soldiers are killing 
indigenous Melanesian Christian Papuans. So they never addressed the fact the, the impact of racial and religious hatred. And the racial and religious hatred has a lot to do with what's happening. Not only a lot to do with the sort of brutality, which includes torture, there, are, there is footage that has been taken by Indonesian soldiers. They've taken you know, footage on their mobile phones of themselves torturing Papuans to death, disemboweling them, burning them, and laughing and calling them kafir and infidels and unclean. And, you know, they're not punished. And you know what else? They're not only not punished, but the, because Western, Western governments sell weapons to Indonesia, the Indonesians just say, oh, they were a few rogue soldiers. Don't, don't sanction us. And, we, of course, we don't want to stop all selling weapons to Indonesia, so we accept their word for it. And the impunity just goes on and on and on. And so it just never ends. So I was really disappointed that they never mentioned racial and religious hatred, which is at the core of what's happening in Papua today. Racial and religious hatred. And uh, this is an area of your expertise, uh, Elizabeth Kendall, when it comes especially to Islamic attitudes to anyone who is an infidel and uh, anyone who doesn't uh, bow the knee uh, to Allah is uh, that infidel. And so you're seeing that at work in the lives of the Papuans right now. Absolutely. That's, that's, that's integral to it. It's also racial. So it's, it's Javanese people looking down on the Melanesians as, you know, backward little tribesmen. It's very similar to what happens in, uh, in, in Myanmar or Burma with the Burmese looking down on the Chin and the Karin and the, and the Kachin, or even in Sudan with the Arabs looking down on, on, the, on the people of Darfur because they're black. I mean, the people of Darfur are Muslims, but they're black. And so the Arabs hate them because they're black. The Arabs in Khartoum hate them because they're black. And it's racial as well as religious. And it's absolutely obscene. And it's right on our doorstep. Uh, these are people, the Papuan people. And I know I'm talking about the Papuans probably on the eastern side of the island now, the Papuans at the, on the Kokoda track. We all know how these Papuans helped our own forces. And the Papuans on the Indonesian side of the island, we all know how they are the legacy of Australian martyred missionaries and, and American and Canadian missionaries. And it's right on our doorstep. These are a peaceful people and this is a slow motion genocide against a people who were just a hundred years ago they were mostly headhunters and killing each other. And today they are Christians. They are facing genocide, a slow motion genocide at the hands of Indonesian troops. And, you know, Indonesian soldiers, they have their fingers in every pie, all the mines, all the logging, everything that goes on. So they're deeply financially invested in the same way that the, the Tatmadaw, Right, the Burmese military is deeply invested. There's money involved. So the Indonesian military does not want to leave 
Papua or West Papua because it's deeply involved in earning money there. And it's really complicated, but it, it can't be ignored. It, it must not be ignored. So with my prayer bulletin of, of this week, the call is that while we have UN experts now saying urgent action must be taken, we must be praying that it will. And it won't just get swept under the carpet and uh, blown away by all the supposedly bigger things that are happening in the world. This is big to God. God, I, I have no doubt that God looks at what's happening in Papua and it's big to him. And uh, we need to be praying that something changes and that urgent action is taken. Elizabeth, let me ask you to reflect for a moment perhaps on a Christian attitude to what's going on. There are people listening. Perhaps some will be saying, well, if the Christians wanted to access all those natural resources and put a superhighway up the middle of a country and go and take all those resources at will, trampling the tribesmen along the way, perhaps you'd have the same thing. If the boot was on another foot, if it was a Christian thing, maybe they'd do the same thing. But the Christian attitude is very different to the way that an Islamic attitude is to the value of people. I wonder if you've got any thought here for listeners who might be able to reflect on on how the Christian attitude is different to what we're seeing in this circumstance in West Papua. Oh, absolutely. So, um, and, and I want to make clear right from the beginning, to be Christian is not to be white or Western. Some people still forget that. There are Western governments that are quite prepared to trample Christians underfoot. And in fact, I would maintain that the Papuans have been betrayed and abandoned by countries that have Christian foundations, Australia, America, Britain. So I'm not talking about uh, governments. Governments can be absolutely wicked. But Christians, Christians know that all human beings have been created by God in the image of God, to have a relationship with God, to be stewards uh, under God in this world, to be in a loving uh, relationship with God. We see all humanity as the mission field. So Christians look at Muslims and we don't see them as the enemy, or we shouldn't, we see them as the mission field. We know that the battle is not against flesh and blood. The Muslim that we see is the mission field. Uh, other worldviews function quite differently. Other, no other worldview has such a high view of human life. No other worldview. Not an Islamic worldview, not a Buddhist or Hindu worldview with its appalling system of karma and you are in the gutter because karma put you there and therefore you must stay. You know, it doesn't divide people into two houses, the house of Islam and the house of war. We don't have a house of war. We have the mission field. It's completely different. People who get think we can just abandon a Christian worldview and that everything will be fine, no, it won't. And this is one of the reasons, actually, why many, you would think, Christian governments, the governments of what were once Christian countries or Christian-majority countries, uh, are failing because they have lost sight of the gospel. They have lost sight of a Christian worldview. They are actually functioning more 
along the lines of a an atheistic Marxist worldview that human beings are expendable and that uh, it, that money is our god. And uh, so we actually need revival in our countries if we are going to see our country do anything other than betray and abandon Christians all over the world, whether it's in Papua or in the Middle East, in Mesopotamia and, and all over the place. Uh, the West is actually abandoning and betraying Christians for the sake of our new gods, so, money and power. Elizabeth, at the end of our conversation, because we've got to tie some loose ends together, I know there'll be some listeners who are thinking, did you mention Australia when you said Australia has abandoned the Papuans, the West Papuans? Uh, is there some sort of advocacy that you have uh, before governments right now uh, around the issue of the West Papuans? Uh, is there any call that says, uh, let's see Australia to the rescue rather than abandoning these people? Any thoughts here on what might be happening? Uh, well, uh, Christian Faith and Freedom did actually write to the government. Um, I can't even remember what year it was now. I don't think it was. The years have blurred. It's I don't not, think it was last recent. year. It might have been, <laughs> it was, it might have been 2020. And uh, we got a response back um, from the Indonesian desk at Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade that was very unsatisfactory. So we wrote back again and got another unsatisfactory uh, response back. Um, but this is an issue that really does need to be kept constantly in front of the government. The government will be extremely reluctant to do anything that uh, upsets the Indonesian government. I mean, and this is the problem. So the people of West Papua are basically uh, our governments would rather would rather not see them. No see, no hear, no speak. You know, conveniently really swept that, away under the carpet. Indonesia. Absolutely. Well, Elizabeth, we do have to draw a close to our conversation. I know there might be more questions uh, in the minds of listeners and there might be a appetite there for more information about what's going on uh, by way of maybe prayer for the people of mm. West Papua. And uh, so let me just mention that the Religious Liberty Prayer Bulletin is accessible when you go to Elizabeth Kendall's website, elizabethkendall.com. So that's elizabethkendall.com, and you'll be able to read articles not only about China that we were talking about earlier, but also about those developments in West Papua. Just to mention also uh, that Elizabeth serves as Director of Research at the Christian Faith and Freedom. Now, it's a organisation uh, that uh, that works with uh, making sure that uh, governments are alerted to uh, the issues of persecution as they're going on around the world. Elizabeth, we don't often take a moment to just say there may be some needs for Christian faith and freedom. Uh, if you were describing in a 30 seconds, uh, what's the most important thing? Because I know that uh, they'd like a few more friends, a few more financial contributors, uh, people who'll be in prayer for the initiatives. Uh, what's your uh, encouragement to listeners? Well, I would say that uh, you know, Christian Faith and Freedom seeks to inform churches and government about the plight of persecuted Christians. And unless the Lord builds the house, they who build it uh, labour in vain. So we really need people to pray for Christian faith and freedom, to pray for what we do. Uh, we've recently written some fantastic submissions uh, on, on Vietnam and Laos, 
Uh, I wrote them and the Director of Advocacy, Carlos Aguilera, fronted up to DFAT to, to talk through them on more than one occasion. But we need people to pray for these things and we also need to be supported financially. Um, otherwise, we have to go and get other jobs, you know. So, so yes, please do uh, visit the website and... Um, and uh, see what's there. Let me give the website for listeners who want to connect with Christian Faith and Freedom. It's cfaithfreedom.org. That's the uh, the letter C, faithfreedom.org. And Christian Faith and Freedom, there's also an Afghan appeal that's running at the moment, another huge issue that hasn't gone away. And, of course, elizabethkendall.com to connect with Elizabeth and her religious uh, prayer bulletin and uh, there's a particular story I know Elizabeth would love listeners to check out from a Pastor Howe or a article about Pastor Howe in China that goes back to the earlier part of our conversation. Elizabeth, thank you so much for taking some time to share your thoughts and your heart with us once again today on 2020. And thank you for having me, Neil. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.